Welcome to Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast that shares Islander views and voices. I'm Kalani, your millennial Indigenous advocate and host. We are recording on the 30th of March 2021, which happens to be a week after the Northern Marianas Covenant Day. So happy Commonwealth Covenant Day to them. That is my homeland. Those are my home islands. Never forget, black lives all around the world still matter, especially in West Papua, currently occupied by Indonesia. Please support Black Pacific Islanders because they exist. On the other side of the world, Breonna Taylor still has not gotten the justice she deserves, so we will continue to say her name. Support Queer Pacifica community as always. I personally attended a weaving workshop this weekend for Mess Chamorro, hosted by my favorite Chamorro collective, Gumagella. Check them out on Instagram and support our Queer Pacifica. Rest in peace to the Asian women who were murdered in Atlanta by a white supremacist with a gun. If you are Asian living in white-dominated spaces, please do take care. I pray for your safety. Deep Pacific stands in solidarity with you and recognizes the suffering your community is going through. There is a link in the show notes to donate to the victims and get educated on the history of white supremacy affecting Asians in America. So please check that out. And yet, we are still here. Under the specter of all of this bad in the world, you and I are still here present and together in this space which I have created specifically for people like us. I hope you are safe and protected. I would like to begin with the acknowledgement that I'm recording on Guahan, Islas Marianas, currently a territory occupied by the U.S. I'm not from here, so I call myself a settler, although I am Chamorro. It is with respect that I occupy this land and space. Welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of Deep Pacific. We begin every episode with a quote from an indigenous Pacifica person that resonates. Today's quote is an excerpt from a spoken word poem, which I probably don't do enough justice to because I'm not a Maori person, but this speaks to anyone in the Pacific or from the Pacific living in urban environments away from their roots. It speaks to the practice of burying your children's umbilical cord in the soil of your homeland so that they will always have that connection to the land. I hope you enjoy it. My parents left their homelands in their 20s. He from north, she from south, met in this big city in between and had me. Their lands called to me, but sometimes I let it go to voicemail. I do not belong there, but I want to belong there. I did not grow up there, and my cousins did, and I was always just a city kid trying to claim a place where my face is strange. I am Ihongaru, without a base, without roots. I am just a shadow of severed umbilical cords, searching for other roots. In Maori culture, your pepeha is your story, your mountain, your river, your home. But what happens when home feels hollow in your throat? Tastes like blood that is not your own. This place is not mine. I am urbanized. That was from Stevie Davis Tana, who is a Maori youth worker and poet. This is from her poem, Rebirth, which she performed in her TEDx talk entitled On the Importance of Whakapapa, the link to which I have included in the show notes. She also has a brilliant website, which she created with her partner, called Project Co. 
Cult is a spoken word poetry visual album about reclaiming identity as a young person in Te Ao Māori. It redefines art and media in a world-first spoken word project that showcases indigenous identity through a Māori lens. At its core, Ko is about navigating what it means to be a young Māori person and the art of identity reclamation. It does not disappoint. Um, it includes some of her latest pieces of poetry, and it speaks to many important themes to Māori people. So I highly recommend it because she is definitely a Pacifica person to watch. After watching her TEDx talk and poem Rebirth, I felt a certain way because I'm not urbanized. But there was a point when I was living away from home that I acutely felt what it meant to be living in the diaspora. And her poem brought that feeling to the surface. So now, with that beautiful backdrop, let's dive in. Fair warning, we will be talking about very traumatizing themes today. So I just want to give you a fair warning. This is an episode that you might need some time to get through, and that's totally okay. It is a very important episode in terms of identity, and I don't think that you need to be a diasporic Pacific Islander to listen to this episode and take something from it. So before we can talk about what it means to us today, I think it's important to do justice to what it meant historically. And there are a few large groups of people who are very well known for being diasporic. So, for example, um, let's start with the Jewish diaspora. The origins of the Jewish diaspora date to the before Christ era when the Assyrians under King Sargon II conquered and destroyed the kingdom of Israel. Cast into exile, the Jewish inhabitants were scattered throughout the Middle East. And after that period, the king deported large numbers of Jews from the kingdom of Judah, but allowed them to remain in a unified Jewish community in Babylon. Some of those Judean Jews chose to flee to Egypt's Nile Delta. And after that period, the Jewish diaspora was scattered among three distinct groups in Babylon, in less settled parts of the Middle East, as well as in Egypt. Afterwards, they came under Roman rule, and while Rome allowed them to retain their Jewish king, the governors maintained control over them by restricting religious practices, regulating trade, and imposing higher taxes on the people. This resulted in a revolution that ended tragically, with the Romans destroying Jerusalem, annexing Judea, and driving the Jews from Palestine. Today, the Jewish diaspora is spread throughout the world, and we acknowledge their long struggles and hardship here today. Another important diasporic group is the Black Diaspora. During the Atlantic and Pacific slave trade era, more than 12 million people in Western and Central Africa, as well as parts of Melanesia, were taken captive, and shipped to the Americas, Australia, New Zealand, and other places to be used as slave labor in plantations. Made up mainly of able-bodied young men and women, the black diaspora grew rapidly. These displaced people and their descendants greatly influenced the culture and politics of American and Pacific colonies back then up until today. Today, descendants of these native African and Melanesian diaspora maintain and celebrate their shared culture and heritage in communities around the world, and we acknowledge their contribution, their hardship, and their struggles, which brought so much to our history and present-day societies here. Black Lives Matter. Never forget. 
Our driving question today is what does it mean to be a Pacifica in the diaspora? This is not to say that all Pacifica away from their roots identify solely as diaspora. The word describes a state of being in this moment as well as a place. But as an example, someone can call themselves diaspora but also be a migrant. They could have immigrated for many reasons. They could be a settler. Diaspora, settler, migrants, they're not sides of a triangle. They're just labels that we can affix to ourselves to identify us to other people. And it depends on the audience and who you're speaking to, but what is diaspora and what do we mean by that word? According to Merriam-Webster, until recently, diaspora was thought to be a fairly new word in English to describe a very old thing. However, Recent research has found that the word is actually much older and can be found as far back as 1594. Merriam-Webster says diaspora with a capitalized D refers to the Jews living outside of Palestine or modern-day Israel after that exile from Babylon thousands of years ago. The second definition that Merriam-Webster gives refers to the movement, migration, or scattering of a people away from an established or ancestral homeland. Remember, Deep Pacific's very first episode in Season 1 on Pacifica identity, when Carol Ann spoke about the tree and the canoe, the tale from the island of Tana. Yeah, that's what we're talking about today. But also, don't forget that while diaspora can describe one's identity in relation to their motherland or roots, which can change as they move through different spaces, it can also be used to refer to a kind of space or place where diasporic peoples live. For example, when speaking about being in the diaspora, it just means that you're not in your homelands. So it's not quite a physical real space, but perhaps more of a mental one to imagine the locality of a group of people. Basically, it really helps as an identifier when you want to be specific, which we will hear some of our contributors today speak about. And as Indigenous people, just as what Stevie said in our episode quote, your pepeja is your story. Declaring where you are from, establishing yourself in relation to others, is an indigenous cultural tradition. Because our societies are not individualistic, we don't ask each other, how are you doing when we first meet someone necessarily, or what do you do for a living? Instead, for example, if I were to meet another Chamorro, say uncle or auntie, they're going to say, hey doll, who's your mom and dad? Or what's your last name? Or what's your family name? And that's just my experience. So what do we mean by the term diaspora today? All this information I'm reading is in the article What is Diaspora? Definition and Examples by Robert Longley. The term diaspora comes from the Greek verb diaspero, meaning to scatter or to spread about. It goes on to say that today, scholars recognize two kinds of diaspora, forced and voluntary. Forced diaspora often arises from traumatic events such as wars, imperialistic conquest, don't we know that, enslavement and blackbirding, or from natural disasters like super typhoons, monsoons, or tsunamis in the Pacific, for example. As a result, the people of a forced diaspora typically share feelings of persecution, loss, and a desire to return to their homeland. And that was a really great point that the article made about the feelings of forced diaspora. A few examples in the Pacific could be the people of Kiribati and Tuvalu, who are losing their islands to climate change and are forced to relocate. 
In an article which I linked in the show notes, former Kiribati president Anote Tong says, We don't want to be the category of people that want to go to other countries and are being resisted or being pushed away. Check out the Humans of Kiribati page on Facebook if you'd like to see updates about how the Kiribati community is doing or to connect with them. The link will be in the show notes. Also, keep in mind that someone can be a climate refugee and diaspora at the same time, okay? They're not mutually exclusive. They mean different things in different contexts. So according to that article that I referred to earlier about diaspora, in contrast to forced diaspora, a voluntary diaspora is a community of people who have left their homelands in search of economic opportunity. A few examples off the top of my head could be some members of the Kofa migrant communities maybe, Um, the thriving Pacifica community living in Aotearoa who went there in search of a better life. Another example could be the Philippine diaspora, of which there are many, many, many subgroups. So unlike diaspora created by force, voluntary immigrant groups, while also maintaining close cultural and spiritual links to their countries of origin, are less likely to wish to return to them permanently. Instead, They take pride in their shared experience and feel a certain social and political strength in numbers. Today, the needs and demands of large diaspora often influence government policy, ranging from foreign affairs and economic development to immigration. And so, with that background set, let's do it. Let's dive in. So our driving question, what does it mean to be Pacifica diaspora. What would you answer if someone asked you that? How has your distance from your culture and the history of it shaped your thinking and how did this color your upbringing if you are Pacifica diaspora? The Pacific Ocean is easily the largest blue area of Earth and it is so large it is bigger than the landmass of all the continents combined. Our ancestors were navigators, and they did not see navigating away from home necessarily as leaving their home. Some saw this movement as their way of living, as many will point out in their pieces today. But anyway, let's fast forward to the present. Indigenous people of the Pacific are still here. They are everywhere. They are you. They are me. You will hear from some others in this episode today. You will hear from Austin, a diasporic Yapis Palawan living in the Hawaiian Kingdom, Brooke, a Pacifica with roots in Samoa, Tonga, Nui, living in Aotearoa, our favorite angry Kanaka, Kavena, fighting for Hawaiian sovereignty in his homeland, Te Tangaroa, a diasporic Maori chef living in Australia, who longs to return to Aotearoa, Dani Deru, a Scottish Chamorro with roots in the Marianas, searching for home and their place. Finally, ending with a beautiful signature piece by Carol Ann, our favorite Ponapian advocate, spoken word poet, cultural practitioner, navigator of Sakao, biochemistry, etc. We will end today with a discussion on a very entertaining scientific paper if I may say so myself, about using a gendered lens to take a look at women's harvesting activities in a Pacific fishing community. 
My name is Austin Haliopi. I'm home for me on the beautiful islands of Palau, specifically Marai State, in a village called Ol, and the outer islands of Yap State, um, located in the Federated States of Micronesia, the islands of Chalap and Sarawal. So what comes to mind when I hear the word diaspora? I think the word that comes to my mind um, the first word that I think about is misunderstood. I think that there's a lot of stigma and stereotypes about people that were raised or even people that have spent a long time away from home. We're misunderstood as far as um, what we know about our roots. Um, I feel like a lot of people, they assume that we know little to nothing which isn't necessarily true all the time. Of course, everybody's situation is, is different and unique. For me, I think that's the general perception when people talk about children of the diaspora. Do you now or have you ever identified as diasporic? I think I have always identified as a child of diaspora. When I was younger, of course, like I didn't know the term for it. But I've come to really own it a lot more growing older. And I feel like the older I get, I'll just own it more, you know, right off the bat when I go into different spaces, meet new people, I make sure that they know, you know, these are my roots. But at the same time, I was born and raised away in the States. And I, I just think that it clears the air. I don't want to be misrepresent myself as something that I'm not. Um, so I want my experience as a child of diaspora to be at the forefront of the space that I'm in and my own experiences as diaspora. And so I always try to make it a point to establish my positionality as diaspora. For me, when I was little, I always took an interest in music, whether it was music from my outer island Yapi side or my Palawan side. I always was attracted to just the tune of the, the songs. And over time, as I learned how to speak my language, even just asking people around me um, what words meant, it just made me like our music even more. And so I think that's how I've really connected with my roots. Um, nowadays, I find myself connecting through language. I grew up speaking English for the most part, and I didn't learn how to speak outer island yappies until maybe about middle school to high school when my grandmother came out and spent some time with us uh, she didn't know how to speak english so it was either yeah, i don't speak to my grandma <laughs> or i learned how to speak our language and so that's how i ended up learning and i think in doing that i was able to learn like different stories that she was able to tell me about our family's history and where we came from and stuff like that that's how i've really embraced um, at least that side of me, that side to my roots. My Palawan side, I'm still, to this day, I'm still um, asking questions. How I relate is through shared experiences that I have with other people in the diaspora, whether they be of diaspora or what was raised back home. I, I think just my interactions with them um, and not necessarily my own people, as, like just Palawans or Yappies, but um, anybody, Pacific Islander that I run into, just trying to find those commonalities that we have in our languages and even our stories and just sharing those experiences. For me, that really helps me connect to my roots 
And at the same time, it helps me build relationships and be aware of other cultures around me, especially being here in Hawaii. It's such a mix of ethnic groups from all over the Pacific and all over the world, really. And so that's, that's how I embrace my roots, and that's how I've gotten to know my roots. I think that there are unique experiences that we have, especially first-generation-born diaspora away from you know your home or your family's ancestral lands. It's like you're, you're trying to juggle two cultures at the same time. Um, your host culture, like for me, for example, American culture, and then also that ancestral, like my Yappies or Palawan culture. It really builds for a different set of skills that we're able to develop, whether we consciously know that we're kind of bridging those different cultures or not. Because I think it puts us in a position to where, especially um, out here in the States, that we can go through this American um, educational system and we can use what we've learned to the best of our abilities and our interests and our passions to help our families back home. And I, I think that's one of the biggest differences. I think also that because we're having to juggle different cultures, I think we really we as in like children of the diaspora we really miss that solid tangible connection that homegrown islanders have being on the islands working in the fields or the patches or fishing in the seas you know you can recreate that to the best of your abilities but it's just not the same and so i think homegrown islanders of course they have that advantage and i think for this last question like what would my message be for diasporic pacifica my message would be get to know your roots ask questions don't be afraid to speak the language even if you know you mispronounce words even if you you know you're not fluent spend time with your elders spend time with the people that you know know a lot about your your family's history or your culture because i think that's how you build those connections not necessarily even asking questions, but just the fact that, you know, you spend time with those key figures, those elders, the fact that you spend time with them, you really learn a lot. You know, you don't even have to ask any question if you just sit there and have a conversation or, you know, join them in working in the garden or whatever they're doing. It really helps and it answers a lot of questions that, you know, you may not even ask. Um, and I know this is not a question, but um, for my message for our homegrown islanders is embrace us in my experience my own personal experience going back home is very is very daunting um, when I went back home I went without my parents and it was just me and you know I was really worried about how people would accept me or take me but my experience is that home will always be home for us and our culture will you know it will always be there so long as we practice it and so i think part of my message also to um, my fellow homegrown islanders is to not lose sight of it just because you're surrounded by it you know our culture our traditions when i was back home a lot of my cousins they would say that can't wait you know i'm gonna graduate high school and i'm gonna go to school in hawaii or go to school in the continental u.s and then you know i talk with them a couple years later and they're really missing home and talking about our family members or people that have, may have passed away since they've been gone. So yeah, that would be my message. And just for, yeah, just embrace our roots all around, whether you're from 
the diaspora or the, your homegrown. Embrace your roots, both sides, because I feel like, you know, these are what make us unique. These are what make us um, resilient. And these are what have sustained us for so long, especially in the Pacific. Thank you. Sainama Asi Austin for your awesome first time contribution today as the first contributor for season two of Deep Pacific. Woohoo! Austin is currently pursuing his master's degree in social work to try to help his community, as well as being the program manager for a great nonprofit called K Vibe. I highly recommend you check out their links in the show notes, especially if you're living in Hawaii. They do some great work in the community there. I appreciated that Austin used the word misunderstood to describe diasporic islanders. He says that often diaspora are underestimated in terms of what they know about their roots. The assumption that diaspora know little to nothing about culture is a general perception that should be addressed by ourselves individually as well as societies. Saying your roots like a pepeha from what Stevie Davis Tana mentioned in the poem is important. Establishing your positionality is so important to Indigenous peoples, and with Pacific people, it is no different. Austin connected with his culture more so through music, through language, and through his interactions with other people. So let me call attention to what Austin said about how he learned his language. I think it's important to note because it ties in perfectly with our episode on family from season one and how important family is to us Pacifica. He learned his language because he wanted to connect with his grandma, who came to visit. And he said it was either he learned his language and speak to her, or he didn't have that connection to his grandma. And so it was basically no option. Austin also made an important point about the intersectionality of diaspora, of navigating dual or triple, or even quadruple cultural identities. He mentioned American culture and Yapis and Palauan cultures. So we should be a little more thoughtful of our expectations for our diasporic siblings, as they are already navigating territory that has always felt foreign to the point where foreign feels familiar. So then returning feels foreign. Give them a break. His message to Diasporic Pacifica was get to know your roots. Ask questions. You really learn a lot if you sit there and have conversations, and it answers some questions that you may not even ask. So connect to your roots. Take that first step. He also said that although it wasn't a question, his message for homegrown islanders, embrace us. Very sincere. I was really happy to hear that. He also said, part of my message to homegrown islanders is to not lose sight of it just because you're surrounded by it. Whether you're diaspora or homegrown, embrace your roots all around because these are what makes us unique, resilient, and have sustained us for so long, especially in the Pacific. It was very sincere and true, and his point of not losing sight of growing up amongst the culture because you live there, that's true. Just because you live in a place surrounded by your culture does not automatically equal you being cultured. Culture is acquired not just through being, but 
through performing and not in the negative sense. It literally is acquired through performing, you know, ceremony or cultural practices. So if you are not performing the culture, and I mean going through the actions and not just performing like it is performative, but really going through the motions as a part of your people and not just the best parts, but the parts that aren't so great, this is important. As a homegrown islander, Austin has given me the awareness I needed to hear back when I still lived on my home island, back when I was a teenager growing up there before I left for college. It's been years since that time, yet I look back and I realize that I complained a lot when I really should have been immersing myself. Now, I won't get that opportunity to do that until I come back home. And with COVID, who knows when that will be. So thank you, Sainama Asi Austin, for your important first-time contribution to today's topic and episode one of season two. Kia ora tātou. My name is Brooke Fiafia Pao Stanley and I was born on the stolen land of our Māori whānau here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, South Pacific. My grandparents were part of the migration here from the Pacific Islands when New Zealand opens its, opened its borders for us to fill their labour shortage. Hashtag pick your own fucking fruit. Uh, in the 50s and I'm second generation here, my mum and dad are both one of seven siblings and I'm one of six. I have a beautiful daughter who has recently renamed herself from Zipporah to Talialia Lofa and a whole gang of gorgeous nieces and nephews who I absolutely adore. Uh, in my opinion, our kids are the goats of the universe. Um, they teach us so much about how to be and show up in the world and we should all be so blessed to be in their presence. I work as the coordinator for Auckland Action Against Poverty, a voluntary organisation that fights for a poverty-free Aotearoa. Um, I believe New Zealand is now and Aotearoa is the future. They're two very different stages of being in terms of our national identity here um, in the South Pacific. Just want to shout out my ancestors for having the range to bring us to this part of the world. Uh, it's the actual best. And I also want to shout out to Iwi Māori as the Indigenous Peoples of Aotearoa. It's an honour and privilege to be born on this whenua and to fight in solidarity alongside you for mana mosuhake. What's good for Māori Indigenous uh, is good for everyone everywhere. I truly believe that. I think the main word that comes to mind for me when I hear the word diaspora is disconnection. I've never identified as diasporic, but I have at times as a young person when questioning my identity and being felt very disconnected from cultural markers of what it meant to be Samoan, Tongan, Yuan, living in New Zealand. But I never felt disconnected from existing, from being here. Maybe that's because intuitively Aotearoa is still connected via our great Pacific Ocean to my motherlands, always has been and always will be. And my family is here along with a massive and growing Pacific community. Uh, anyways, I realised quite young that I didn't have the language or connections to the church. My parents allowed us siblings the freedom to choose whether we wanted to attend and one by one my siblings and cousins and I all dropped out at Sunday school which is a very rare experience for Pacific Islanders because the church is literal life for many of us. I'm thankful for my parents giving us the autonomy to choose though, because it's given me the freedom to explore in my mind all kinds of ideas and religions and spiritualities. It allowed for my own relationship to self, ancestors, gods, and great mother to come to be. 
Uh, maybe I'd always end up here, who knows? Despite not having these relationships to the language and the church, I never felt disconnected from existing. I figured that just because I didn't have these things, it didn't make me less of a person in my eyes. And so who did I want to be as a woman? I decided to cultivate my identity and being from this at around 17. I'm 35 now, so I started very young in choosing who I was for myself. I decided no one could tell me who I was, that that power was mine. I think our experiences of living away from our homelands are of course very different to those who are living there. I feel like everything about a particular place shapes and informs who you are. Uh, the collective consciousness of a people is in constant relationship with the land and everything of it, and so we're all shaped and influenced and impacted differently by our own unique experiences. I feel like what keeps us in community and culture are the values that we choose to uphold and practice where we are. I think there's a very real perception of those of us living away from our motherlands as being papalangi or white by those of us living there. I think for us who are living away, there's a sense of inferiority because we feel disconnected to what we've been led to believe makes us full or whole. Standards we've learned from white supremacy, which I wholeheartedly reject. Our ancestors would never reject any of us based on what we believe makes us worthy of being of the Pacific. For me, living in New Zealand, what's been really important is how I practice our values. How do I show up for my family? our Māori whānau, communities most displaced by colonisation, any kaupapa that supports mana motuhake. How do I carry myself and my line with integrity? How do I use my power and privilege to affect change? Love is a core foundation of my beliefs and I try to imbue that into everything I am and do. And I believe it's the most powerful value we have and with it I truly believe we can change the world. I think for far too long we've been made to believe that we're not enough, either by white supremacy or each other, and I'm tired of living to standards that never served us. I don't understand why we continue to adopt values in ways that keep us disconnected from each other. The Pacific Ocean is our great connector of humanity, and I want us to believe in each of our power, the power of each other, and that of us as a collective. We've always been people of the ocean. We have an obligation to our ancestors and babies to pull up for the kaupapa. Awesome. So that was Brooke, Sainama Aussie Brooke, for your important first time contribution. Today, I was so impressed by her piece, honestly. She just said such profound things and had a beautiful outlook on children and whakapapa. Brooke's piece was really insightful. She said, I believe New Zealand is now and Aotearoa is the future. And they're two very different stages of being in terms of our national identity, which is something to think about for sure, as someone who follows New Zealand politics somewhat casually because I'm still learning how everything works. If any of our Maori listeners want to chime into that, please feel free on our social media. Something I really loved was that in explaining her positionality as a Pacifica with mixed heritage to different island nations, Brooke set the stage for us to understand her narrative better. Amazingly enough, her experience was something like Tamiti's experience, maybe. Tamiti spoke on episode 1 on identity from season 1, as well as the episode 10 on religion, where she said that she had a different upbringing than most. 
because she didn't grow up within the confines of the church community and its standards. So Brooke's experience seems to be similar, and because of this, it's somewhat unique to both of their upbringings. And that doesn't make it any less valid, of course, especially not for today's discussion, because who's the arbiter of authenticity in these lands anyway? Just being what they are makes their experiences valid, but it does make their experiences more like the ripples on the edge rather than the majority in the middle. But you know what? Even ecologists agree that studying the edges of ecosystems are where you can see some very unique and insightful change happening. So we appreciate you, Brooke, for contributing to today's discussion. Sainamasi. Aloha mai kako. This is Kavana Ulo Kala Kapahua coming to you from the Kingdom of Hawaii. When we think of the word diaspora, oftentimes, especially in Hawaii, we think of people who have been forced from our lands. But Hawaiians also have a long history of choosing to leave our lands. Before our contact with Haole and white people, many of us departed Hawaii to go on grand navigations of the ocean and explore new places. There's many, many, many stories of this in our history of people getting on a canoe and voyaging to faraway lands and sometimes not coming back and making a life for themselves wherever they went. In a far more modern time, though, diaspora often comes with the painful connotation and context that Hawaiians are constantly being forced off of our land and into exile. And it's common to see this in the rest of the world, unfortunately, through violent means displaced due to violence and war, displaced due to famine, natural disaster, and economic means. And especially in Hawaii, we see economic means used today to exile Hawaiians who are forced off their land for corporate and military and capitalist interests and forced into exile because they can no longer afford to live in our lands and no longer afford to feed themselves on our aina. And this is a topic that's close to my heart because at one point I was one of these Hawaiians who was forced from Hawaii due to economic means and into exile far, far away. Both of my parents uh, lost their jobs when I was around 10 uh, and we were never a very rich family. We were rather poor. And so we were forced to leave Hawaii in order to survive financially. And the place we went was the Middle East. So my dad could become a pilot out there um, and make money. And uh, even though I had been born and raised in Hawaii, around adolescence, I was forced to leave. And so that greatly changed the direction of my own personal relationship with my culture. Diaspora means you have to go through a whole different kind of growth process than you would if you were growing up on our homeland in terms of connecting with our culture. If you are an indigenous islander, you know that so much of our culture and so much of the learned part of the culture is based on person-to-person relationships and conversations. And it's harder to have those conversations when you're thousands of miles away and when you don't have access to those kind of connections and resources and you don't have those kind of people in your life. I was one of those Hawaiians. And it's a very difficult place to be, especially when you have a drive and a hunger, like I did, to learn everything you can about your culture and your history and your language. And not having access to those resources made me feel starved. I'm sure that's kind of a a feeling that a lot of other Hawaiians who are living in the diaspora, whether they were born there or live there now, 
may have of that starvation or lack of air and oxygen almost in, in terms of not being surrounded by other Hawaiians or not being surrounded by your culture and your history. It's a very difficult thing, but it's not necessarily something that cannot be overcome. When I was away from Hawaii uh, from about 2010 to 2016, six years of my life, it was difficult because I had this insatiable desire to learn everything I could about my culture and none of the knowledge in terms of how to find those resources and how to find that information. So I remember spending long nights Googling everything I possibly could, coming up with Wikipedia articles and some smidgens of Hawaiian history, but not really being able to go deeper than that. Definitely not being able to find anything to help me learn the language. Coming across the Hawaiian independence movement and becoming extremely invested in it, but still being far away to a point that I couldn't contribute, I couldn't be a part of it, and I didn't know where else to find new information. Um, and it wasn't really until I came home that I would be able to fully dive into that. But I think nowadays there's a lot more of those resources and a lot more emphasis on ensuring that Hawaiians in the diaspora have access to those resources. And I think that's not necessarily a unique experience to diasporic islanders in terms of having to reconnect with your culture. A lot of us have to reconnect with our cultures, even if you're born and raised in your homeland, just because of how colonization works. But being so far away and not knowing where to start, not knowing where your community even is, is a very unique diasporic experience. And having to reconnect with something so far away is extremely difficult. And I think that a lot of diasporic islanders understand it and then it becomes twofold when you come back to your homeland and you have to deal with some of the lasting ignorance that has been implemented by colonization i remember when i came home from being away when i came back for college there were some hawaiians who thought i was less than because i had been away for so long that somehow despite being born and raised on oahu that i was less than because i had spent many years away and that meant i knew less about the culture that i had less experience on this land and somehow that made me less um, which is not true uh, and anyone who thinks otherwise can gladly try to discuss that with me um, but it's a, an experience and a rejection that is kind of unique to being in the diaspora i don't necessarily consider myself a diaspora client anymore because i live here and i was born and raised here so my experience is vastly different than many hawaiians who are born away and still live away but one of the most critical parts for me was keeping up that desire to learn. I feel like as so long as you keep that, then you'll be able to reconnect and your kupuna will guide you to what you need because that's what happened with me. I got very lucky in terms of being able to find information on the Hawaiian independence movement online and what few Wikipedia articles and other little bits of Hawaiian history that I could read that I cherished um, and different small mo'olelo. But there are so many more resources today and it's something I really want to emphasize for a lot of Kanaka diaspora, particularly because I know that a lot of Kanaka in the diaspora look to movements like the Mauna Kea movement for inspiration and with a lot of love because that's kind of something that they can engage in in terms of parts of their culture because they don't have to know all of our history. They don't have to know every single hula or anything like that to be able to engage with that kind of popular movement. Also a good time as ever for our our Kanaka to come home because like Mauna Kea, the movement for Hawaiian independence, another thing, Hawaiian rights is rising and so many of our diaspora Hawaiians want to reconnect with their home and I think the best way to do that is to come home. Obviously it can be done away, but I think the best way to do it is to come home 
because once you're home, you see so many more opportunities for access to the culture and the history and the resources and to get involved with your community. And there's no better time to come home because it only gets harder being further away. And the more Hawaiians that come home, the easier it is for us to fight to reclaim our homeland because the more of us and the less of us are being forced out. I think that's extremely critical. Even though I came home from the diaspora, it took me years to be able to like fully engage in the community the way I did when I went to Mauna Kea and got super involved in everything. And now I do what I do as an activist and organizer and revolutionary. And what people know me as now took years to get to that point because I was still recovering from the trauma of being in the diaspora and playing catch up and trying to get up to the place in terms of my learning and understanding of our culture and history where the rest of my peers were already. Um, I had to do years and years and years of learning in mere couple years in college or a couple months even, depending. And I think that's a very difficult thing to ask of our diasporic Hawaiians or diasporic Pacifica in general. But I think that coming home is the best way to reconnect if you're looking to do that. And if that's out of your reach, then there are resources online to do that. But there's no substitute for coming home. And I would encourage everyone to do it no matter how hard it is because... It's the best way to help sustain and save your homeland. And so if I had a message for the diaspora in the Pacific, it's that even though many of us were forced away due to harm done by our colonizers, we are no less for it. But what we can do to counter it is to do what we can to come home and create a homeland that no one ever has to leave by force anymore. No one has to leave against their will. And that if people like Hawaiians or Pacifica in general want to go out and explore the world, that they will have that option, but they will always have the sanctuary of the homeland to come back to. Mahalo nui loa for listening. Ahui ho. Aloha aina kako. Okay. So I love, 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 love that Kavena brought in the perspective that in previous times our ancestors navigated the seas and chose to leave the lands to explore new places and sometimes didn't come back. Sainamaasi Kavena for your important piece and contribution to this discussion. I learned so much about, I, I learned like new things about Kavena every time they contribute to something on Deep Pacific. It's really interesting. Kavena, as usual, brings up important points. His experiences being a forced diasporic Kanaka is relatable to so many because Pacific diaspora are so plentiful outside of the Pacific for many reasons, mostly due to economic ones. And of course, Kanaka are among the largest group that I can think of just in terms of representation on, you know, being separated from their land, being forced out from their land. Them and I think Filipino diaspora, that's also quite a large group. But anyway, while he was in the diaspora, Kavena brings up the feeling of being starved for his culture and history due to his lack of connection to people and resources for him to connect to. That actually isn't always the case today with the badass resources like the Sharkive and the sharing of resources, for example, on Kanaka Twitter, like Kavena said, or Team Fiji Twitter. I see that happening a lot and many other places in social media like Facebook and Instagram. But still... Not knowing where to start, not knowing where your community is, and having to try to reconnect to a community that is so far away is difficult and a unique experience for those who are not in the homeland. Another point was made here about returning home from the diaspora 
and others making him feel like less than because of that. And this is an attitude we need to reject outright. Because if the fire to learn and to connect is snuffed out, imagine the pain that that causes. And I personally would not want to ever be the reason that a person chooses not to pursue learning about their culture because of my hate. No. Kavena has always brought up great points in their piece about their experiences growing up in the homeland but being raised away out of necessity because of economics. And it is so difficult for Kanaka to live in their homeland today because of the illegal occupation of the Hawaiian kingdom. So we at Deep Pacific stand with our Kanaka and support them in their struggle for self-determination. Please support Kavena and donate to Hawaii Mutual Aid Networks like Corona Care Hawaii or Kanaka Land Back campaigns if possible. Deep Pacific has donated to a few of those in the past few months and we will continue to do so in support of our cousins across the sea. Sainam Asi Kavena, mahalo nui lua for sharing your piece today. Before we move on, why don't we take a quick break, get some water, stretch a little bit, and then we will be right back. Kia ora. my name is Teo Tangaroa. And I'm a Maori that grew up in the diaspora in Australia, which means to me, at least, that growing up in the diaspora stole an important part of being Maori, of because I have no connection to the land that I come from. I mean, I don't have pleasant childhood memories of playing in Amade and those other things, and it's kind of always been a bit of a dirty secret. Because the reasons we left New Zealand, my family, uh, are just the usual British Crown genocide nonsense that's repeated throughout the Pacific, everywhere. You can change British for American or French or Dutch or Indonesian or whoever you want, really. But it wasn't a choice my family had in that it wasn't one that was actually able to be made. My siblings and I were handed over... Uh, were released to the foster care system in New Zealand. And the way my parents got me and my sisters back was by having my grandparents, uh, my mother's parents, take custody of us. And that was never formally relinquished. My grandparents weren't planning on staying in New Zealand and my parents could either move back to Australia and be with their children or they could abandon their children as the uh, New Zealand crown determined was best. And... That changes a lot of things, a lot of anger, a lot of rage at that. I still am a Maori Tangata. It hasn't fundamentally destroyed the way I see the world. I still see the world from a Maori point of view. I don't understand, fundamentally don't understand Western civilization. It's not a thing I intuit. And even growing up far away from far away from a place that I belong in both time and distance, it it doesn't extinguish the way to do it. it doesn't change your connection to stories, to respect for animals, for land. It it cuts out a big part of you. But that part still defines you in its absence. And I think 
fundamentally for a lot of Maoris that didn't grow up removed from Aotearoa in entirety don't think they really understand just how big your ties to the land are and how much not having them how much not having them leaves a hole and you try and fill it with other things gardening raising chickens uh, <laughs> whatever you can find wherever you can find it but then when you go home there's almost this hunger <laughs> to almost eat fistfuls of the dirt so that's kind of what i think the diaspora the forced removal blackburning uh genocide whatever you want to call it the being cast from the land that you belong to against your own will marks everyone in the diaspora very differently and i th i think it's different for every single tangata in the diaspora um i I don't, I don't feel it the same way Samoans do. I don't feel it the same way Tongans do. I'm pretty sure I don't feel it the same way um, Kanaka Maloi feel it. I don't think I feel it even the same way as other Maoris do. But we still carry the culture. We still tell the stories. We still try to keep to our people's ways the best that we can while removed from them. And I think that it's important for members of the diaspora to not feel that they are less than. Because none of us, none of us truly made a choice to leave. We were all forced to. Given the choice, we would probably stay home. And if I had a message for anyone in the diaspora is, home is always there. We can always go back. We will always belong to a place. And as long as we remember to treat wherever we find ourselves with the same reverence as our home island we will never lose what makes us us all right so that was a great first time contribution as well from te tangaroa who is trying to return home to aotearoa from australia i honestly hope they get to accomplish that goal one day sincerely Sainamaasi Te Tangaroa for sharing in this space today and contributing your piece. Their personal experience made them feel like growing up in the diaspora stole an important part of being Maori to them. But their history was so unique and sad, but maybe not unexpectedly, one of incredible resilience. And Maori people, from what I've seen, are so resilient. Pacifica people are resilient, but aren't we so damn tired of it? Yes, we are. So shout out to Te Tangaroa, aka Mad Chef Red, for overcoming and yet having something so valuable to add to this conversation today. Check them out on Twitter, on Deep Pacific's Twitter list, Deep Pacifica, if you want to follow some incredible Pacific peeps. And please subscribe to their Patreon, Mad Chef Red, which the podcast is a subscriber to. Their Patreon videos teach me about traditional cooking methods, especially for Maori cooking. So please feel free to support a chef returning home if you're able to. And the link will be in the show notes as always. Titangaroa mentioned that growing up away doesn't change your connection to your land. But according to them, that part still defines you in its absence. Hmm. In speaking about growing up away from their ties to the land, 
They mentioned how much not having these ties leaves a hole, and you try to fill it with other things. The vulnerability they showed here today, like a sharp pain turned dull, was incredibly meaningful. Please do not take for granted when another person reveals a part of themselves that has hurt them for so long. We don't take that for granted in this space. Take your time if you need to. Tetangaroa is an example of someone who had no option to stay. And how would they, right, when they got separated from their land and family at such a young age? Much pain and suffering has been happening in Aotearoa and Australia with these four separations. And we won't look away from it. We acknowledge it. They also mentioned that it's important for diaspora to not feel like you are less than. This is an amazing thing to remember because they're not the only contributor today who says this. And they didn't collaborate either. So different people said this. So thank you so much. Sen Agaresiham, Nuhagu, Tetangaroa for your important piece. My dad leaves the room to go lay down. I'm starting to feel tired, he says. He might give pause if I called him Sita Tau because I didn't growing up. None of us did. The most fino Samoro he heard was from Nanotnya, but she didn't teach him how to speak it. She didn't think he would need it where they were headed. Born of the soils of San Diego, then back to where the family was rooted, to Muning Guam, and then back to California again. Home was a complicated notion long before I ever showed up in his. I never heard about Agat, Zotnya, or Zigu before I went there myself, but Roseville, Santa Cruz, Berkeley, these were the place names that I would hear tossed around at family gatherings, which were few and far between. On island, I can't imagine missing a fiesta on account of being far away. But in the States, where commitment is quantified by airfare and freeway exits, you get to learn how much people really care about family. And everyone's got a different answer. From California to Texas and Oregon, we grew up in the land of career worship, where professions are what bring people together and draw family nobly apart. The way my brother and I grew up, you'd think we were twins. We were close without ever having to think about why. But as school gave way to jobs, it became obvious that we were pointed in different directions. Him with the gearheads and engineers, and me, the artsy-fartsy crew. Who's to say it would have happened different anywhere else? I get more used to explaining some more culture than participating in it. The more I do it, the more it feels performative. Some days, Guam feels like a bumper sticker slapped on the resume of my identity. My dad's been forwarding me emails from extended family. They're negotiating the sale of our ancestral land in Tizan. It's been decades in the works, and everyone just wants the money. Guilt weighs heavy, Kikorosonu. I'm opposed to the idea, but would I personally go blow all my cash to build and live on the land? Beyond that, I'd be better off punching a hornet's nest than suggesting the idea to the relatives. My dad seems indifferent. Every new update feels like a knot coming untethered, the bond between Tautauts and Tanu coming undone. Odziyami. Who are we in the diaspora when we lost our connection to the land and language? The more desperate among us idealize the islands. Paradise. That was me once, too. The desire to feel rooted can distort our vision when we look back. Papa Maupioluk said, If I have courage, it's because I have faith in the knowledge of my ancestors. But my ancestors cut their ties with the land and fled, 
after losing everything to the war. I feel like for the diaspora, to have courage is to carry empathy for your ancestors and navigate with whatever resources they gave you. I feel bound to keep wandering through these new places, wondering where I'll find a home. It feels like a betrayal to say the word here. At once I feel the pain of trespassing on someone else's land and being at a loss for my own. So I'll pick up and move once more, looking for home in places where I haven't before. I know home can be wherever you want it to, but I'm starting to feel tired. My soul is adrift. Sen Agradesi Zunuhagu Danyet, or Danideru, is a artist who spoke on our episode on artivism in season one, and I loved their piece. I highly recommend you check it out. Danyet has spent much of their life in the diaspora. They mentioned the feeling of being better at explaining Chamorro culture than actually being in it, because to them, being Chamorro feels performative. It feels inauthentic. And that is a very strong word, which I'm sure many diaspora listening today are familiar with, right? Performative. We can still be, even if living in the land, but culture, like we said earlier, is part what you are and part what you do. So if you weren't brought up doing, then how does this shape your connection to the culture later in life? Danyet's piece really gave us insight there as to what it feels like. They feel adrift. They mentioned that searching for what feels like home is so tiring. I admired their vulnerability in this space. Their ancestral lands are being sold in Guam. Nothing they can do about it. And of course it makes them feel like their bond is being severed. Because who are you when you don't actually have the access to your ancestral lands? Like Stevie mentioned in the very beginning in the quote, this land is not mine. I am urbanized. And I'd never realized until creating this episode, those experiences were so common. Unfortunately, I wish I could comfort you. I wish I could be that tomorrow auntie that hugs you and pats your back and says, I doll, it's okay, you're still tomorrow. And maybe like slip you money, tell you to go to the store and buy yourself something. But that feels inauthentic to me, especially in this space, although I'd love to do it. Ultimately, nobody else can really tell you who you are. Of course, we kind of need that validation, right? Especially from other people in the culture or other people who we look up to. That's nice to have. But who you are is what you are, what you claim, who claims you, and what you do. And I wouldn't necessarily say that having fulfilled one of those categories makes you Pacifica or Asian or whatever you may identify with. It's not up to me or others to tell you that. Today's episode is not to answer these questions, but to think about them. Also, this is not Ancestry.com or 23andMe, which, by the way, as someone who is looking to get into genetics, I do not recommend for many reasons. But that's just my opinion. Danyet then quoted Papa Mao, Master Micronesian Navigator, who said, If I have courage, it's because I have faith in the knowledge of my ancestors. And that was a beautiful saying. Their final quote, 
I feel like for the diaspora, to have courage is to have empathy for your ancestors and navigate with whatever resources they gave you. Have empathy for your ancestors for making the choices that they did. Especially these days when economic hardship is happening all around us. for your important contribution to this discussion. My name is Caroline. Home for me is the beautiful island of Puente, where the flowing waters of Tausokale birthed me and the lands of Kosap Letao and Kosap Arro raised me. Being a Kofa migrant here in the Kingdom of Hawaii, the word diaspora was only recently introduced to my worldview upon moving back to Honolulu for university. It was in academic spaces where the concept of being a member of the dispersion from my homeland, a diasporic Micronesian, was used to describe me. Since then, I have identified as being a diasporic Micronesian. Adjacent to that, I identify as being descendant of a navigating society, wherein since time immemorial, my ancestors have crossed ocean spaces traveling away from home to perpetuate home. Because of the size of our islands and the limited amount of resources, navigating was a necessity. Home was not one physical space of land. Home was the ocean and the connections that resulted from the ocean pathways we cross. I think the word that I fixate on when I talk about being diasporic or being a navigator, more so ideologically than literally, is the word necessity. Building connections, traveling, creating pathways to resources was a mode of survival, and even more so, it allowed us to thrive in the big ocean spaces we call home. For my community, we have never limited our definition of home to be a plot of land. Home is not just our island. Home is the ocean that connects our island to the rest of the world. It is in the spaces and the modalities of living that have allowed us to thrive through connecting and reconnecting. The ideologies that have allowed us to continue to identify as Pacific Islanders, or in my case, as Mentonpe. The ability to have been able to still carry that identity across millennia is a true testament to our cultures, which are truly the living, breathing manifestations of adaptability, sustainability, and resilience. As a diasporic Micronesian, I do think that there have been narratives that are misleading in the ways they sometimes paint the culture as holding us back. That's not to say that our cultures are perfect, but it is very much to say that our cultures are not monoliths. They're living, breathing things that have the capacity to change. And as practitioners of culture, it's our responsibility to allow those transformative positive changes to happen for the better of our communities. We merely have to look back at our indigenous stories that recount our ancestors birthing entire islands and civilizations to see that. On Puente, we have the story of the Sautelor, who were tyrants. When they built Nanmatan, they introduced an entirely new system of authority, new methods of worship, and then came Isokalakal, who changed that. And that legacy, those legacies are still very much a part of the identity we carry as Buenpeans. That history of change we carry in our stories. We reconnect and re-see our resilience over and over. 
we echo it into existence. Being a member of the diaspora is perpetuating a legacy of navigation that validated whether we stayed on our islands or moved on from them in order to thrive. My autonomy to be able to choose to voyage away from home and then voyage back home in pursuit of a better life is just as valid as any other navigator's autonomy to voyage away from home and pursue a better life elsewhere. No matter where our voyages take us, we are a part of that bigger connection to home. The lives we build can continue to be extensions of home the way our ancestors always willed them to be. That's what being diasporic Pacifica means to me. Kalangan. Rer. Awesome. Sainama Asi, Caroline, for your great contribution and the finale piece on today's episode. Here's the cool thing. Caroline identifies as being a diasporic Micronesian. She also says that adjacent to that, I also identify as being a descendant of a navigating society, wherein, since time immemorial, my ancestors have crossed ocean spaces, traveling away from home to perpetuate home. Navigating was a necessity, and Caroline really drives that point home. It was honestly awesome. Like It had not really been something I had thought about, but her point about land being limited is true. We know that very well in the Pacific, but we also don't measure what we have by just land. It's ocean. Home was not one physical space of land. Home was the ocean and the connections that resulted from the ocean pathways that we crossed. Very true. The word that Caroline used to describe diaspora was necessity. Something that we needed to do to survive was to navigate, travel, and build connections. It was more than just survival, though. It was a means to thrive and allowed us to connect and reconnect, just like we're doing today. Just like we're doing on this podcast. So many great things Caroline mentioned in her piece adaptability, sustainability, resilience with the capacity to change. If you think back to Caroline's first piece on the episode on identity, linked in the show notes in case you needed to hear it, she spoke about Isokelakel and his story as a diasporic hero of his people. If you haven't heard the myth of Isokelakel, I have linked to Caroline's blog post with it. I highly suggest you check out her other important works because she's not only a beautiful spoken word poet, in her free time, but she is also a fluid writer and a wonderful cultural practitioner, also a biochemist studying kava and sakao. Shout out to this badass Ponpei and Pacifica diaspora. Carol Ann, Ponpei will be so lucky to have you back one day, to be quite honest. Sainama Asi for your important contribution. Awesome! So, we have now reached the end of the narrative portion of the episode. How about we take a break, you get a drink of water, stand up to stretch, flex your muscles around and to the sky and your roots to the earth and we will return with more. Why don't we talk about some key takeaways from today? A diaspora 
like we said, is a group of people who've been forced from or chosen to leave their homeland to settle in other lands. They typically bring their culture and traditions of their homeland with them when they do it. And they could be created by voluntary emigration or by force, as in the cases of war, enslavement, illegal annexation, or natural disasters. Nice. There's kittens outside. An important quote I read when researching this episode came from Kirsten McGavin from a paper called Belongings. Don't mind the kitten in the back. Diasporic Pacific Islanders and the Meaning of Home. The quote goes, As people's identities in their home islands are scrutinized, negotiated, and contested, two things happen. The boundary between socially defined and self-defined identity becomes increasingly marked, and people's sense of belonging, their idea of home, both in the Pacific Islands and in the diaspora, fluctuates, morphs, and or solidifies. Indeed, identity home, and belonging are highly personalized concepts shaped in the nexus between experience and expectation. Further, identity becomes defined through a complementary duality of categories, oscillating between a fixed construction of ethnicity slash quote-unquote blood and a more interpretable idea of behavior and performance. It's kind of like oscillating between it. So it's not necessarily fixed. It's not necessarily interpretable. It's kind of like somewhere there's a spot there, I swear. But anyway, today we heard from six other Pacific voices, all of whom have been diaspora at one point or are in the diaspora now. So my message now is to you, my awesome listener. Are you now... Or have you ever identified as diasporic? And now that you've heard everyone's perspectives, what does that word mean to you? Carol Ann said necessity. Austin said misunderstood. Brooke said disconnected. Kavena mentioned navigators who chose this life. Tetangaroa said no choice was given to them. It was by force. Danideru said having courage and having empathy for your ancestors. And I love how different their answers were, to be honest. And I hope you did too, my awesome listener. Is your answer to that question somewhat different now, or is it more or less the same? How are the different ways diaspora can be interpreted in the Pacific? What are the ways that we think of diaspora today And how will those change in the future with global warming and rising oceans? Because believe me, it's going to happen. Change is going to come whether we want it to or not. Let us know at Deep Pacific Pod on Instagram or Twitter. All right. So now is the scientific paper, which I had a very good time reading, actually. And so the title of the scientific paper today is called A Gender Lens on Women's Harvesting Activities and Interactions with Local Marine Governance in a South Pacific Fishing Community. 
This was published in 2018 by the journal Maritime Studies. The authors were Jane Roy, Akim Schluter, and Sebastian Fursi, who are all researchers at the Leibniz Center for Tropical Marine Research, as well as Jacobs University in Germany. So, shout out to them for producing this pleasant paper, and I am so, so sorry if I mispronounced any of those names. The significance of this paper is that it offered a gendered lens to view the activities and interactions between women and enforcement of marine protected areas in the Solomon Islands, which is a part of Melanesia and whose people identify as being Black Pacific Islanders. They've also suffered from blackbirding and being traded as slaves in the past. So this paper is important because it is one of the only ones to offer such a lens, albeit one from European researchers, on gender and maritime enforcement in a community that really relies on the sea for a large part of their diet. So this paper is important too because it is one of the few that talks about the different use of marine resources and maritime spaces, as well as the roles which women play in the community and local economy, which got brownie points from this woman, I will admit. The paper is awesome because it doesn't approach the question of are women breaking rules in MPAs and why, but like rather, why are MPAs put into place by men without the consultation of the women who are the main users of that resource area? And I think that's how we should see many issues in the Pacific, not as simply being, oh, this is bad. Why this people doing this bad? But rather, why do we think this thing is bad? And how is this bad? And to who? And to be honest, that is rare, and it made this article a pleasant read. Women really should just be involved more, honestly, in many of the decision-making processes. So who does this article affect in the Pacific? Obviously, it affects the Solomon Islands in particular, but I would argue that this gender lens could be applied to all of the Pacific. So we could see women's roles in marine resource management be made more clear or more prominently in everyday society. Literally me, but just saying. This also affects the people who manage these resources, such as the chiefs, the enforcement teams, the scientists who study these areas, because an MPA is supposed to be assumed to be a place that doesn't get fished, right? So if it gets fished then that messes up the data and it could make us give wrong assumptions or make wrong assumptions. But maybe the men should have thought about that, right, before designating a random patches of reefs as MPAs. Oh, wait, they wouldn't have thought about it because they don't fish there. Never mind. So how does this affect the Pacific? It really illustrated the need for gendered approaches in all fields because many cultures in the Pacific treat their men, their women, and their non-binary and or trans people differently. Their roles are different, the privileges, the contributions they're allowed to give, these all come with deferring expectations. And because of that reason, then gendered approaches to this thing is bad are needed to understand the full picture of marine protected areas and resource management or just the full picture in general. So my opinion, LOL, I think these women were total badasses. I'm not advocating for 
exploiting your marine protected areas, of course. But however, as someone who now has the full picture of what this particular MPA's background and management was, I would say that the location could have been revisited. Women could have been consulted. And after all, an MPA that is being fished actually, truly, according to the science, would probably be a case of bad numbers and statistics for any study being done in the area. Also, as a future marine scientist, MPH should be established in places which would be great spots for like larval seeding and flow maybe, like for coral reefs especially, but maybe not near a place that has women visiting every day, uh, basically that has anthropogenic impacts. As a woman, I see that other side. But as a scientist, I mean, there's a meme that goes, I'm not condoning this behavior, but I understand. So that's, 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 that's me right now. What is being done? Um, that's a great question. I'm not really sure what happened in Solomon Islands after this paper was published or whether it changed the marine protected area or the governance of that area. For all we know, this is still happening back there. Um, but what should be done, right, is really that we must advocate for our women in the Pacific in all areas of governance. Yes, even in marine protected areas, but also in for businesses. And, you know, we want women CEOs. We want women represented. That's really it. Future thoughts. Those those were it. That was my future thoughts. Um we have inherited this world and this Pacific Ocean, and we are the caretakers, and women are the perpetuators of culture. And so I think that they deserve a bigger part or bigger role in the decision making for things such as marine protected area designations. So this is now the end of the scientific paper. Woohoo! Please check it out, linked in the show notes, if you want to read more. Women said some really funny things and it just gave a really good, it was like a feel good paper. It was really funny. If you've made it this far, thank you, Sainam Aussie, for listening all the way through on our first episode of Deep Pacific Season 2. Whether you've been following our journey from day one or if you've just recently joined the Deep Pacifica fandom, thank you so much for your support and attention. Thank you for sharing us with your friends and family. Thank you for recommending the podcast to your friends. I hear about these recommendations kind of often, and I really love it. Thank you for subscribing. Sometimes I get imbiriqueta or nosy, and I like to go look and see where our listeners are tuning in from the most. So shout out to our top six places we have listeners in, which is the United States of Diaspora, Guahan, Australia, Aotearoa, Fiji, the UK, also shout out to that one listener we had from american samoa thank you for tuning in to deep pacific for our next episode ooh, we will be covering the topic of our changing ocean for earth month in april i have to admit this is my last semester as a student so it's taken me a lot longer to bring this episode and these voices out to you but rest assured that i won't put an episode out unless i do it justice if that means it takes a month, it might mean that it takes a month. And I apologize, but it is what it is. We are in a pandanus. So shout out to those listeners 
who subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, especially the ones who rate us. We see you, we read them, and we love you. We also do appreciate all of our monthly contributors to the Deep Pacific Tip Jar, who are enabling us to keep going, albeit at a snail's pace. But we keep it going, we keep what covers our expenses, and we donate the rest to other Pacific causes. So we appreciate you a lot, and your contributions allow us to act almost like a nanny mutual aid network, and I love it. Thank you for enabling us to do that. We may be doing a little private episode for Earth Month, so stay tuned for that on the socials. And then if you ever needed to look at any of the resources, they are in the show notes. Please don't forget to check those out. This is now the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. Sainam Asi.